The Opportunity Zone program was supposed to create an upward spiral of wealth in low-income areas, but the program instead helps the wealthy by allowing them to avoid paying taxes. That money could better be spent on funding universal housing vouchers so that up to 4 million extremely low-income Americans have a safe and affordable place to sleep at night. Welcome to the California Law Review podcast. Our goal is to provide an accessible and thought-provoking overview of the scholarship we publish. Today, we will be discussing a piece by Brandon Weiss titled Opportunity Zones, 1031 Exchanges, and Universal Housing Vouchers. The article was published in Issue 1 of Volume 110 in February 2022. Professor Weiss, thank you so much for sitting down to talk with us today. Thanks so much for having me, Carter. Really nice to be here with you. So to start out with, can you talk a little bit about what inspired you to write this piece? Yeah, well, there were really uh, a number of motivations. It arose in part in in response to these claims Trump was making about uh, the Opportunity Zone program. Uh, If you follow the 2020 presidential campaign at all, you probably heard him touting how Opportunity Zones were revitalizing economically distressed communities, particularly communities of color. Uh, He was fond of saying that he'd done more for the, quote, black community than any president since Lincoln. He would always cite Opportunity Zones as one of the top successes in that regard. Uh, And he'd actually, I think, persuaded some folks across the political spectrum. So one motivation is that I was I was skeptical of these claims and I wanted to investigate. Uh, Another motivation was that Opportunity Zones really reminded me of another tax provision, the Section 1031 like-kind exchanges. It's a much older provision of tax law. It's been around for about 100 years. And I wanted to compare these two provisions, Opportunity Zones and Section 1031, to really help sharpen my critique of Opportunity Zones as really just a tax shelter for wealthy investors. Uh, and then I'd say the final motivation, uh, you know, I wrote the first draft, at least, of this article in the summer of 2020, uh, which I guess now seems like the early days of the pandemic. Uh, you know, millions of households faced a lot of uncertainty and the potential prospect of eviction for the inability to pay rent. Uh, and, you know, even before the pandemic started, nearly 20 million households paid more than half of their income on housing. Uh, a reality that affects disproportionately uh, extremely low-income households, those making no more than 30% of area median income. So others had floated this idea of a universal housing voucher for extremely low-income households. So that, that wasn't my contribution in this paper. What I wanted to do was show how we could pay for it. How could we actually fund that idea uh, by eliminating these two tax expenditures, Opportunity Zones and Section 1031? So let's start with some context. What is the Opportunity Zone program and what did its supporters claim it would accomplish? Right. So so to critique the program, you need to know a little bit about how it works. Uh, in particular, it, it really provides three discrete tax incentives to taxpayers uh, who have capital gains. So think gains from investments. This isn't, you know, ordinary income. Uh, uh, you know, it's people who have sold a piece of appreciated real estate or some stocks. Uh, and if they invest them in certain geographically defined opportunity zones, this program gives them some benefits. So, and there's three of them. The first is a tax deferral mechanism, meaning that, uh, you know, gains invested in one of these opportunity zones will be excluded from their gross income until uh, taxable year 2026. So as an example of how this helps a taxpayer, 
if an investor had you know capital gains of two million dollars, say in 2020, uh, and reinvest those gains in an area designated as the opportunity zone, uh, then those gains won't be taxed until 2026. You know, typically you have to pay tax in the year of the gain. So uh, it bestows a time value of money advantage by allowing them to defer those taxes. What I mean when I say the time value of money is simply to say that a dollar in your pocket today uh, is more valuable than a dollar in your pocket, say five or 10 years from now. A dollar in your pocket today, you can invest, you can earn interest on that dollar, uh, whereas uh, you know obviously you can't if you uh, have had to pay tax on that dollar and no longer have it. Uh, the second incentive is a direct reduction in the capital gains tax owed. So, and there's really two different sorts of, of possible reductions here uh, based on how long the investment in an opportunity zone is held. So if a taxpayer puts their money in an opportunity zone and holds this investment for five years, the investor receives what's known as a 10% basis boost. Talk in a minute about what that means. Uh, or if they hold the investment for seven years, then they get a 15% basis boost, a cumulative 15% basis boost. So an example of why that's valuable, suppose you have an investor uh, who has capital gains of a million dollars, invests them in an opportunity zone, holds that investment for five years. Ultimately, when the tax is due, they'll only pay tax on 900,000 rather than the full million, right? 10% or 100,000 is never taxed. So again, you can see why that would be valuable. And then finally, third, the, the, the third incentive is an exclusion from income and ultimately from paying any taxes on uh, the appreciation of any of these investments if it's held for 10 years. So, for example, if a taxpayer invests a million dollars in an opportunity zone and suppose that investment appreciates, goes up in value by 20 percent, so uh, there's $200,000 in gain. Well, that $200,000 in gain will never be taxed, will be excluded from income so long as the investment is held for 10 years. So those seem like very valuable incentives, but what does the public receive in return for those tax expenditures? That really gets to uh, where this money must be invested. So the investments must be made in certain defined census tracts, uh, these opportunity zones, uh, and you know there's a definition in the code, but essentially they're relatively high poverty rate tracts, uh, relatively low median incomes. Right. So so trying to, to incentivize investment in areas with high poverty rates, the governor of each state nominated 25 uh, percent of the eligible tracks in their state for certification by the Treasury. Uh, that all happened in 2018. And so, you know, you asked what, what is the sort of vision or, or what did proponents you know say about it and how it would work? The basic vision here was that uh, the program will draw capital into these low income communities that investment will drive new job creation. Uh, uh, and with this new job creation, that increases purchasing power as people in the, the community have more money to spend. That in turn will draw in new businesses, new resources, uh, which of course then will, you know, people will, will need to work in these places so that'll create new jobs and sort of so on in this upward spiral. And so, you know, as the program was sold, the, the upshot is that the community is, is benefited uh, and improved, and there's you know significant job growth, and investors walk away with some additional tax breaks uh, for you know the service of having invested in these low-income areas. 
In your article, you critique this vision of what the Opportunity Zone program would accomplish. How does this vision compare to the reality of the program's impact? Yeah, so, you know, in reality, um, the kind of splashiest headlines around the Opportunity Zone program have been around fraud and abuse. Uh, Governors who sort of politicized the choice of Opportunity Zone locations, uh, maybe favoring census tracts that had uh, investments by political allies, um, headlines about billionaires, you know, reaping windfalls for projects that were already planned, or maybe not even located in a low-income neighborhood, even though, you know, maybe technically in an Opportunity Zone census tract. In fact, in in January of 2020, the Inspector General of the Treasury Department uh, opened an investigation into Opportunity Zones based on reports of fraud. So, you know, if you've heard of Opportunity Zones and this isn't your field of study, uh, you know, the context in which you've probably heard about them is in this sort of fraud and abuse frame. Uh, In the article, though, I, I try to argue that this sort of, you know, bad apple narrative really isn't at root what's most wrong with opportunity zones or, or how they've gone wrong. Uh, and rather, it's the fact that, you know, it's based on really a deeply flawed model, uh, one that's, you know, sort of enduring, uh, but nonetheless problematic. And the model is really that, you know, sort of mere proximity of capital, the fact that this money is being invested nearby in these neighborhoods, Uh, will solve deeply entrenched issues of poverty and racial inequity. So you just mentioned that this notion of proximity of capital as something that will solve deeply entrenched issues of poverty and racial inequity, that this is flawed. Can you explain why this is a flawed premise? Yeah, so it's really not a new model. Uh, It draws on uh, work, probably most notably Harvard Business School professor Michael Porter, Uh, who gave a a somewhat sort of distilled version of the argument in the 90s in a really famous paper called The Competitive Advantage of the Inner City. Uh, You know, he said things like, quote, to solve the economic distress of America's inner cities uh, and reduce, quote, crippling social problems, the most important contribution companies can make to inner cities is simply to do business there. So if you read his writings, he was a big proponent of sort of government and the nonprofit sector getting out of the way, playing somewhat of a secondary support role to business uh, and and just letting business do business in the quote unquote inner city uh, as a way of uh, alleviating economic distress and reducing crippling, uh, reducing crippling social problems. Um, You know, the problem, what we've learned since Porter's writings is that this is a big oversimplification. Uh, right? That's simply stimulating economic activity, not that it's not good or, or couldn't be helpful, but, uh, you know, simply doing that on, on the one hand and actually solving deeply entrenched issues of, of poverty and racial inequality on the, on the other uh, are not equivalent. And so, you know, in part, this is the conversation about gentrification that's been unfolding in cities uh, really around the country for decades now. So you argue that beyond the Opportunity Zone program being ineffective and based on a flawed principle, you argue that it could actually harm the communities that it purports to help, for example, by accelerating gentrification. Can you talk more about the harms that it could cause? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, many people are now sensitive in part due to Richard Rothstein's great book, The Color of Law, to uh, the ugly history of redlining uh, and these sorts of practices where certain communities were really cut off from credit and resources uh, simply based on race or ethnicity. 
Uh, and so, you know, there's an understanding that new investment, new resources is important. At the same time, this, this kind of central question has, has emerged, how do we ensure that when this new investment comes in, uh, that the fruits of the investment accrue to the benefit of current residents rather than simply leading to increased rents, neighborhood change, displacement, um, you know, and so that's sort of arisen as this key question in, in conversations around gentrification. And I think that we've gotten really good at, at kind of beautifying a neighborhood. So, uh, you know, setting up a central business district and in the article I cite to research by the, the wonderful National Homelessness Law Center and its report on the criminalization of homelessness, how increasingly for many years jurisdictions are taking sort of punitive approaches to the homeless uh, and, uh, you know, making it, you know, basically penalizing sleeping on a park bench, even where you have nowhere else to go or uh, even giving food to the homeless, um, you know, in, in the sort of spirit of, of neighborhood beautification, which clearly is different than actually alleviating poverty if you're just pushing it somewhere else. So uh, in the paper, I talk about how the Opportunity Zone program, you know, pretty much just adopts Porter's ideology wholesale, the, the business do business in these Opportunity Zones, doesn't, very minimal requirements, doesn't require any hiring of local residents, uh, any jobs that are created, doesn't, uh, you know, require partnering with any local organizations or already pre-existing businesses, doesn't even really place very many limits at all on uh, what the investments can go into, doesn't require the development of any needed assets like affordable housing or healthcare clinics or grocery stores. So, you know, as a result, I argue that at a minimum, it's unlikely to do much good. And at worst, it could actually do harm by contributing to forces of, of gentrification and displacement. That's definitely not to say, um, you know, there are no good opportunity zone projects out there. Uh, there are, especially, I think, when coordinated by local government, and particularly with involvement of grassroots community groups. Uh, but the early data seems to bear out, you know, my argument in the paper that, uh, you know, if you look at the data so far, at least, there's been very limited impact on long-term employment outcomes or, or even short-term employment outcomes. Almost all money is flowing into real estate projects, essentially all of this investment. Uh, uh, something like 96% per one report has gone into to real estate. The concern being there that even if some jobs are generated, they're probably more likely short-term construction jobs. Um, so, so yeah, I think so both sort of theoretically and what we're seeing in the early signs, uh, it looks like at a minimum the, the program is uh, not being particularly effective. And uh, I think we have good reason to, to be concerned that it, it could cause some harm. To what extent do you think that the mismatch between the Opportunity Zone program's vision and its actual impact is intentional? Is the program just a tax break and an investment opportunity for the wealthy that's being disguised as a community development program? Uh, indeed. Uh, you could have taken that straight out of the article. I, I, I think the program is first and foremost a, a tax shelter for wealthy investors that's been somewhat dressed up and sold in the language of economic development. And really part of how I try to demonstrate that is by comparing opportunity zones with this other tax shelter, uh, you know, that I'm sure we'll talk about the Section 1031 like kind exchanges. Right. So in your article, you say that the opportunity zone program is similar to a much older real estate related tax break called Section 1031. Can you provide us with an overview of Section 1031? Sure. Um, you know, as I said, it's been around a long time. This is a, a provision of the tax code that 
has existed for around 100 years. So maybe it'll be helpful to, to give an example of how it works. Um, you know, suppose a taxpayer owns a, a piece of land uh, and purchased it, uh, say, in the year 2000 for $4 million, and that 20 years later, by 2020, uh, it's appreciated, it's gone up in value, uh, and now is worth about $10 million. So you've got $6 million in gain. Uh, suppose that, you know, for whatever reason, the taxpayer doesn't like this piece of land anymore or, uh, you know, want, sees some business opportunity, wants to transfer it for some other property. Under typical tax principles, if you didn't have Section 1031, when you transfer a, a piece of property, uh, as a general matter, you've got to recognize the gains. So the, that $6 million in appreciation, you'd have to recognize it and pay, pay income tax on it. Um, but under uh, Section 1031, if the taxpayer identifies some other piece of property they think is roughly of equal value, and the two owners exchange those properties, uh, then no tax is owed at that moment, right? The original owner pays no federal capital gains tax uh, on that $6 million in appreciation. And instead, it's as though that taxpayer bought the second property for $4 million, right? So the idea is it doesn't get them out of paying tax altogether, right? It's just a deferral of recognition provision. So the, the idea is that, well, when they sell that second property, then they'll realize the gain and, and have to, to pay tax. Um, but there are actually no limits to the number of exchanges uh, in which an owner can engage, right? So, so the, the kind of play made by modern real estate developers uh, is that they can just continue to exchange properties uh, until they pass away, right? Continually deferring tax on the increased value of their property. So you might say, okay, well then at least at death, you know, finally the, the government will, and really it's the, the public will get their due and, and tax will be paid. Uh, but uh, that would be true, but for another provision of the tax code, which provides what's known as a step up in basis to market value at death. So what that means is that when the original taxpayer passes away, it'll be as though the beneficiary of that property uh, bought it at the current market value, right? So there's no gain built into it and, and hence no tax owed. So really, if you sling together a few of these things, section 1031, and then the ability to do successive exchanges over time, and then the notion that at death, there'll be a step up in basis that kind of wipes away this gain that's been carried over uh, for, for many years. 1031 can really be a method of avoiding paying uh, federal capital gains tax altogether. So that's sort of how it works. And in the paper, I, I compare and contrast Section 1031 now with opportunity zones, which we were just talking about. Of course, there are key differences. But in many ways, if you zoom out, they're really just two alternative approaches to, to tax avoidance, to avoiding paying capital gains, particularly when you're dealing with real estate. Right. Uh, we know 1031 now only deals with real estate and almost all investment and opportunity zones has been uh, in real estate. Uh, and so, you know, I argue that this is really how these provisions would be looked at and analyzed by a taxpayer, uh, not as, you know, how can I invest in a community or, or, you know, what will help with economic development, but really just, you know, what's the best way I can avoid paying taxes. So unlike the Opportunity Zone program, it's not really obvious on its face that Section 1031 is inspired by some sort of policy goal. So how did its advocates and how do its advocates justify it? 
Good question. You know, you might ask, well, why do we allow this? Uh, and, and again, that's one of the, the motivating questions for writing the paper. So uh, I dug into some of the legislative history of Section 1031, as well as, you know, looking into modern arguments that are used to defend it. Uh, and what I found is that it really boiled down to, to four primary arguments. Um, measurement being the first that, well, it's difficult to measure gain when a property isn't sold, right, and is merely exchanged for another piece of property of like kind. Uh, the second being administrability, you know, concerns about administrative costs and just the transaction costs of needing to pay taxes on, for example, a large number of exchanges of similar property, uh, maybe think barter transactions. Uh, third, liquidity, right? Concerns about well, how, you know, how and is it fair to make a taxpayer pay taxes if they're not actually cashing out the investment, but merely exchanging it? Will they have the money to pay taxes? Uh, and then finally, uh, the, the economic argument, as I call it in the paper, uh, that, you know, deferring payment of taxes really facilitates transactions that increases productivity and essentially greater economic efficiency. So I, I don't think in the, the podcast we're going to have time to, to go into depth in each of these, but, uh, you know, as a sort of broad, um, you know, uh, flyover, I argue that each of these rationales is ultimately unpersuasive in many cases because things have changed over time or these rationales have eroded. Maybe they did make good sense uh, 100 years ago in ways they don't anymore, or maybe there have been changes to Section 1031 and how it works or the market that have made them uh, no longer really uh, defendable. Let's shift gears now and get to your proposed alternative. You propose that we expand the Section 8 Housing Choice Voucher Program and turn it into a universal housing voucher. First of all, can you describe how the existing Housing Choice Voucher Program works? Sure. So under the existing voucher program, uh, if you're an income-eligible household, uh, you go out on the private market and you identify a unit of rental housing and you'll ultimately enter into a, a lease with the landlord. Um, and the tenant pays roughly 30% of their income as rent. And assuming, you know, the housing qualifies, it meets certain physical standards and doesn't cost any more than certain uh, HUD established rent levels. That's Department of Housing and Urban Development uh, established rent levels. Then the federal government, in partnership with local housing authorities, will pay the balance. So uh, it's it's a little bit different than other of our subsidized housing programs, where the government actually provides hard units of housing uh, that are subsidized. Here, individual households go on the private market, find housing, and pay no more than thirty percent of their income on rent. The government picks up the rest. Uh, it's it's the largest of our federal low-income housing subsidies makes around two and a half million units of housing affordable and, and you know, available uh, to low-income households. Uh, and, you know, roughly over five million low-income people end up benefiting from the, the voucher program. Uh, notably, based on HUD data, uh, around 50% of these voucher holders have a, a black head of household. So it has implications for, for uh, racial equity as well. And can you describe your proposal, the universal housing voucher? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, proposals to expand the, the Housing Choice Voucher Program, or, you know, as it's colloquially called, the Section 8 Program, uh, have really gained political momentum in recent years. Um, this is, you know, possibly in large part due to Matthew Desmond. Uh, some of your listeners may have read Evicted. 
his Pulitzer Prize winning book, uh, a wonderful book. In it, you know, probably his main policy proposal at the end is a universal voucher for extremely low income households. Again, extremely low income households are households making, making no more than 30% of the median income in their area. Uh, beyond Desmond, though, you know, a number of Democratic candidates in the 2020 election picked up on the idea, including now President uh, Biden. Uh, the idea of you know providing vouchers to all eligible households, or at least dramatically expanding the program. So my my argument here wasn't new. It was to say, well, look, we've got some wind in our sails on one uh, policy idea that would clearly be helpful. Uh, I want to try to demonstrate how, via sort of moderate shifts to our federal tax priorities, uh, we could fund it. So you know, I, I do some basic basic math in the piece and, and think through. Well, you know, what would it cost? to expand the, the Housing Choice Voucher Program to cover all extremely low-income households, uh, as Desmond had proposed. And he suggested in his book a price tag of $22.5 billion, which would you know roughly more or less be a doubling of the current funding for the program, which in fiscal uh, 2020 was, was just under $24 billion, uh, $23.8 million. So I sort of rhetorically ask, well, you know, where might Congress start to look for such funds? How about eliminating 1031 exchanges, right? Uh, you know, eliminating them altogether would be a good place to start. Uh, it's a tax expenditure that costs the federal government roughly, by some estimates, $13.6 billion annually. So if you do some basic math and you can get all these numbers on, on the HUD website by just digging into some of HUD's uh, data, the average cost to the government of a voucher is around $807 a month. Uh, that's just under $10,000 a year. So if $13.6 billion were available to the Treasury uh, through the elimination of 1031 and collecting that tax revenue, uh, those savings could be used to fund roughly 1.4 million new vouchers per year. Uh, and so that's vouchers, that's not people. Uh, HUD you know, estimates about a 2.3 to 1 ratio of occupants, you know, members of a household per unit. So if we had 1.4 million new vouchers, that would bring housing security to 3.2 million more U.S. residents on an annual basis. Uh, if you add in the estimated cost of the Opportunity Zone program at around 3.4 billion, that brings our total, uh, you know, newly available funds up to 17 billion dollars. So not quite, but but almost all of the money necessary to fund Desmond's proposal. Uh, that would provide 1.8 million new vouchers to more than 4 million extremely low-income residents. So if we just pause and think about our federal priorities here and our tax priorities, by eliminating uh, Section 1031 and Opportunity Zones, we could ensure that 4 million more extremely low-income people uh, have a, a decent, safe, affordable place to sleep at night. Uh, I, I think there's a strong case to be made for, for that argument. So what would be the benefits of a universal housing voucher program, and how would it differ from the program as it exists today? So, uh, you know, as it exists today, the, the Housing Choice Voucher Program, it's not an entitlement, unlike some other government benefits. Uh, not all income eligible households receive a voucher, as you've probably, you know, uh, intuited from the nature of my proposal. Given perennial funding shortfalls, roughly only one in four eligible households actually receives federal housing assistance. Uh, so the remaining three quarters of eligible households uh, you know, often sort of languish on housing authority wait lists. 
uh, for many, many years. As one example, uh, you know, where I'm from in Los Angeles, uh, the, the Los Angeles Housing Authority opened its uh, wait list, Section 8 wait list in October of 2017 um, for new uh, applications. Uh, and it was reopened for the first time in 13 years it had been closed. And that was just to put your name on the wait list. That wasn't even to get a, a voucher. So clearly the biggest benefit is simply just expanding access to vouchers. Um, but, you know, in addition, there, aside from just sort of, uh, you know, additional housing security, uh, recent scholarship has found that housing vouchers, you know, provide other benefits too, particularly when utilized in, in quote unquote, high opportunity neighborhoods. Uh, you know, vouchers can have significant positive economic impacts. Um, so, you know, particularly for children, when they use a voucher, you know, when their family moves from a quote unquote low opportunity neighborhood to a higher opportunity neighborhood, thinking a neighborhood with uh, you know, better scoring schools and employment outcomes and these sorts of things, that it can have a, a significant impact on, uh, you know, things like uh, future income of, of those children that are moving. Um, and, you know, there's some some contention in the literature on this, and it isn't at all an argument that all vouchers should be used in high opportunity neighborhoods or uh, that everyone should be moving to high opportunity neighborhoods. But for those households that might choose to do so, that can be one uh, possible benefit. The program is far from perfect. There's no shortage of debate and, uh, you know, critique in the literature. Most notably, uh, you know, Section 8 voucher holders can still be discriminated against uh, in, in many jurisdictions. Uh, and, and so meaning to say there's no fair housing protection specifically uh, uh, based on the nature of being a voucher holder. So a landlord can refuse to rent to you because they don't want to rent to, to a Section 8 voucher holder or participate in the program. Uh, in some cases, it can be hard to find a unit on the private market if you're in an area where there's very low vacancy rates. Uh, and there's other challenges to interjurisdictional use where people can really use these vouchers in other jurisdictions, uh, you know, mobility and, and some concerns about how the size of the, the sort of um, jurisdictions are set. Their efforts to address these challenges, um, particularly on the source of income front. So uh, I said that in many places, you know, voucher holders can still be discriminated against. Well, that's changing. There's a great movement that's been built to try to pass uh, what's known as source of income, uh, you know, discrimination protection laws so that landlords in, in many cities now and states across the country can no longer discriminate. Um, you know, there are movements like the YIMBY movement, Yes in My Backyard, to help try to to build more units, particularly in areas that see uh, particularly low vacancy rates, uh, and a host of other proposals and interventions that would try to even further improve the Section 8 voucher program. Um, but you know, these changes will take time. I'm I'm not uh, sort of you know starry-eyed that this proposal will solve all of our housing uh, problems, uh, even if the voucher program were perfect for what it is. Uh, there's still a need for, as I you know many refer to them as supply-side programs programs like public housing, programs like the low-income housing tax credit that actually build new units of housing uh, rather than simply you know, tap what's already on the private market, uh, particularly for providing things like permanent supportive housing, housing with on-site you know, mental or other social services. So uh, I think I'm sort of uh, clear in the paper that I think expanding the voucher program would be extremely helpful, provide housing security, maybe even some economic opportunity to a number of households, but uh, it wouldn't solve every housing challenge that we face. 
great. Thank you for giving some context to your proposal. That's really helpful. Can you also talk about some of the challenges that your proposal might face and how to deal with them? So, yeah, I think clearly, you know, the the top challenge uh, is a political challenge. Um, Biden has actually expressed support for uh, at least limiting Section 1031 in his American Families Plan. He, he limits the use of Section 1031, although he, he provides an exemption uh, up to $500,000. Uh, but as soon as this, uh, you know, plan came out, a number, and really even before it came out, because he also campaigned on this idea, uh, a number of real estate trade groups uh, started lobbying and pushing back. Uh, notably, the Federation of Exchange Accommodators is one somewhat prominent group in this area. Uh, organizing against the proposal, lobbying against it, uh, a letter by a number of prominent groups was written to Secretary uh, of the Treasury Yellen, uh, saying that you know this was a bad idea for some of the reasons that we've already uh, talked about. Uh, so political challenges, you know, is one uh, kind of challenge, but I don't think it's insurmountable. Um, you know, changes have been made to Section 1031 over the years, for example, dramatically limiting it to just real estate. Uh, so I think there is some possibility. Uh, and then, you know, a second category of challenge that I talk about in the, the paper uh, is a little more abstract and conceptual, but sort of a psychological challenge. Uh, to significantly increasing a program like the voucher program. Um, you know, there's a certain appeal to the Opportunity Zone program and really to the Porter philosophy of, of solving these problems by simply letting business do business, you know, teach a man to fish. It really kind of resonates with um, the free market ideology that, that lies at the core of the American psyche. Uh, and I talk about this a bit in the piece in uh, reference various you know theories from the literature, things like system justification theory that argues that there's a strong impulse uh, to defend the status quo, even by those at disadvantages. Um, I come from the field of community economic development. I definitely support efforts to make the economy more broadly inclusive, uh, to use the tools of the market to expand uh, economic access and opportunity. Uh, and you could imagine better versions of the Opportunity Zone program. Uh, scholars like Ted DeBarbieri, for example, have made great recommendations for uh, how one might improve the program. In this piece, I was trying to make an argument uh, that in addition to such approaches, uh, direct assistance is also needed and maybe uniquely now in this moment uh, you know, that we've been living through with the pandemic. But also, you know, it existed before the pandemic came and will continue to exist uh, long after it's gone. Think about individuals with disability. Think about the elderly. These are two of the largest categories of those who receive federal housing assistance. Uh, you know, simply making the economy uh, more broadly inclusive, allowing business to do business, isn't going to help them. Uh, sometimes direct aid is what's needed. Well, Professor, thank you so much for drawing attention to the housing crisis and the false promises of Opportunity Zones, and also for sitting down to discuss your article with me. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Carter. It's uh, been wonderful uh, what you're all doing with this podcast series, trying to make legal scholarship, uh, which isn't always the most accessible, more accessible to, to the broader public. I should say it's been an absolute pleasure working with uh, the California Law Review staff, really from start to finish on this piece. Uh, and if I could give a special thanks to, to the editors I worked most closely with, uh, Ian Kelly, Hadley Rood, and Isabella Coelho, 
Uh, and you, Carter, uh, it's been wonderful speaking with you as well. So, so thanks to, to your whole journal. We hope that you have enjoyed this episode of the California Law Review podcast. If you would like to read Professor Weiss's article, you can find it in Volume 110, Issue 1 of the California Law Review at californialawreview.org. For updates on new episodes and articles, please follow us on Twitter. You can find a list of the editors who worked on this volume of the podcast in the show notes. If you are able to leave us a rating and review, we would greatly appreciate it. See you in the next episode.